Welcome to the Aura of Greatness podcast, episode 1.17, O Comandante, My Comandante. Last time we covered the Revolutionary Directory's attack on the Presidential Palace in March of 1957, Che's reunion with Fidel, and the opening of Che's open-air medical consultations that formed a major cornerstone of the peasant outreach program that would prove so useful in strengthening the rebels' relationship with the peasants of the Sierra Maestra. This time, we will follow the rebels as they get back on the offensive. On April 17, 1957, the rebels trekked back to the site of the Battle of Arroyo del Inferno. It must have been a surreal experience for the surviving rebels to set foot back on the battlefield after three months. For Che, it was a return to the ground where he had his first confirmed kill. Che and the movement had grown tremendously in that time, and each day that elapsed, the rebels' threat to the Batista regime only strengthened. Today's march was temporarily suspended while small squads were sent out to find food and gather intelligence from the locals. The squads returned and shared intelligence that a Chivato named Filiberto Mora had been spotted in the area. Guillermo Garcia volunteered to track and capture Filiberto. Fidel was worried about remaining stationary too long while the capture occurred. A government reconnaissance plane had flown overhead while the squads had reported their findings to Fidel. He feared that the Chivato may have discovered the rebels' location and had already alerted the Cuban army. Fidel contemplated abandoning the location, but Guillermo promised he would be quick. Guillermo had a plan to find Filiberto. He would use what was quickly becoming Fidel's signature move of impersonating an army officer to walk right up to an unsuspecting enemy and convince them to walk back to the rebel camp before they had any idea they were in danger. Guillermo set out, found Filiberto, and returned in record time. Che wrote in his journal that, the minute Filiberto saw Fidel, he realized what was happening and started to apologize. Filiberto was terrified, and in the hopes of receiving mercy, he immediately confessed all of his past crimes. Notably, he had served as the guide who uncovered and directed Batista's army to the rebels' location in Arroyo del Inferno that resulted in the battle three months prior. Luckily, the rebels had been waiting to ambush those troops, but still not a great look for someone now in the custody of those rebels. The interrogation also uncovered that the Battle of Arroyo del Inferno had actually resulted in five army casualties instead of the four dead that had originally been counted. Fidel's paranoia surrounding the plane and Filiberto, perhaps knowing they were in the area, proved correct as Filiberto admitted that before his capture, he had sent a cohort to inform the army of the rebels' present location. The interrogation ended shortly after, as it was unknown how far away the army might be, and the rebels prepared to decamp. Fidel ordered that Filiberto be executed. Based on Che's notes, it is likely that he personally carried out the execution. He had this to say on the matter. The Chivato was executed. Ten minutes after giving him the shot in the head, I declared him dead. As the rebels prepared to leave, a messenger arrived with two letters for Fidel. One from Celia Sanchez with a response to Fidel's request for money and another journalist to interview him. The second was from Armando Hart. The Hart letter is interesting as it has since disappeared from Cuba's official record of the revolution's history. We know about this letter in part thanks to a note in Che's journal where he remarks about the letter that in it Hart shows himself to be positively anti-communist and he even insinuates a certain kind of deal with the Yankee embassy. If the letter really did explicitly mention an alliance or deal with the United States, it would make sense why the letter has since disappeared. Since Castro came to power and the subsequent devolution of Cuba and the United States' relationship 
the Cuban government has been quick to conceal any on-the-record admissions about contacts or agreements between the U.S. government and the 26th of July movement. It has long been speculated that the United States had initiated contact in the summer of 1957. If Che's remarks on the letter are to be believed, then that would move the timeline of contact up to March. An earlier contact highlights the quick rise in the reputation of Fidel and the 26th of July movement since the grandma's landing, along with the United States penchant for playing all sides in conflict that could benefit the bottom line of large American corporations and financial interests. The guerrillas decamped and resumed their march toward Mount Turquino. The direction was chosen for multiple reasons. For one, it gave a destination and a goal for the rebels to move toward. For two, it was the highest peak in Cuba, and Fidel wanted to climb it. He figured that giving a press conference from the highest peak in Cuba would be a diplomatic coup that would play admirably in the media. For three, based on reports, it would make for a relatively safe march that would allow the rebels to continue to fortify their supply lines to ensure that both men and mules could arrive daily with foodstuffs. The ever-increasing number of men in the army meant that they could not as easily live off the land, and logistics would play an ever more important role in the months to come. The opportunity for the highest Cuban press conference coalesced toward the end of April when Celia Sanchez sent word to Fidel that two employees of the American CBS network, investigative journalist Robert Tabor and cameraman Wendell Hoffman, wanted to interview Fidel and the three Americans who had joined the revolution. Tabor will become an important source for us for the remainder of the Cuban Revolution. He stayed with the 26th of July movement in order to document their struggle against the oppressive Batista regime, only occasionally leaving to report on some of his findings. He helped continue to popularize the rebel cause in the United States. After the revolution, he would publish a book about his experience titled M26, Biography of a Revolution, in 1961, and he followed that with the 1965 publication, The War of the Flea, the classic study of guerrilla warfare, which was about the relationship between state power and guerrilla insurgency, presumably largely based on his first-hand experience in Cuba. It is also possible that Tabor may have learned of Fidel's communist sympathies as he founded and organized the Fair Play for Cuba Committee in April 1960 after Fidel had won the war and openly committed to the Marxist cause. The FPCC resisted attacks on Cuba by the United States government and provided grassroots support for Fidel's government. The FPCC is particularly noteworthy thanks to its most famous member, Lee Harvey Oswald. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. In the United States, the New York Times articles by Herbert Matthews had made the Cuban rebellion one of the hottest stories on the presses. Fidel was eager not to disappoint the wealthy Americans in order for his agents to continue their fundraising efforts. In order to impress Tabor and Hoffman, Fidel rearranged the camp slightly and moved his personal camp above the main camp onto the summit of a hill. The stated objective was to provide increased protection, but the timing of the change leaves little doubt for who this cosmetic change was directed. On the day of Tabor's arrival, he spent the majority of his time interviewing the three American runaways who had joined the movement. These three had become celebrities in the United States, and it made sense to capitalize on their status while they still could. After the interviews had concluded, Fidel unveiled his plan to hold his interview on the summit of Mount Turquino, and soon after the rebels set out to climb to Cuba's highest peak. The interview on the summit of the highest peak in Cuba presented Fidel and the 26th of July movement in sparkling light with a postcard picturesque backdrop. It was another political triumph for Fidel, who above all else really knew how to present his image to the world. 
Tabor and Hoffman's interview produced the CBS special report, Rebels of the Sierra Maestra, the story of Cuba's jungle fighters, that aired in May of 1957. This interview helped solidify the rebels as celebrities and first-page news for the remainder of the revolution. With each new story, it made Batista and the government troops look all the more incompetent, especially considering it had been a full six months since Batista's press had published the story of Fidel's death. For Che, he played a very small role in the political theater. Image management and fundraising outreach were two of Fidel's strengths, and Che would not particularly help on either count. Che was a known communist with a hatred of the United States. It was best to use the baby faces of the three Americans, along with the charismatic leader, as the face of the revolution at this early stage. However, that does not mean that the interview was not a major victory for the asthmatic Guevara, just that his victory occurred off-screen. Che wheezed his way up Mount Trequino, step by step feeling his asthma worsen as the rebels drew near the top. The highest peak in Cuba, with its thin, wet air, was the exact atmosphere that Che's childhood doctor had recommended he avoid for the health of his lungs, which had prompted the Guevaras to move to Alta Gracia when Che was four years old. As Che struggled to reach the summit, it had become a matter of pride for Che to conquer his health and reach the top. He may have been the last man to the top, yet he made it in time to join his brothers-in-arms as they dramatically fired off their weapons for the cameras. It was an immensely proud moment for the man formerly known as Fuser for his fearlessness on the rugby pitch. In his mind, if he could make it to the top of a peak in the Sierra Maestra, he could surely make it through this war into a better future. After the CBS newsmen had gotten their shots and sound bites, the rebels prepared to descend the mountain. Che was assigned to the rear, partially as a trusted rear guard, partially to assist Victor Buhlman, one of the Americans, who had fallen ill after his interview, and partially because Che was still suffering the effects of asthma and was slower than most. In his journal, Che complained that Buhlman's only sickness was homesickness. This turned out to be a very astute observation as Buhlman and one of the other two Americans interviewed chose to remain with Tabor when he parted from the Cubans at the end of May. Life Magazine's May 27, 1957 issue has a real great photo of Buhlman shaking hands with Camilo Cienfuegos and saying goodbye to Fidel under the headline, In Man's War, U.S. Boys Quit. I'll post the picture on the show's Facebook page if you are interested in seeing it. The third and final American youth highlighted in Tabor's story would remain with the rebels for another few months before he too decided to leave. As the rebels descended Mount Chiquino, Che was relieved as his asthma symptoms subsided. Even though the rebel army had lost two of the Americans from their numbers, the ranks actually grew in May as, for the first time, Cuban youths had tracked them down to join the army. The youths had been romantically attracted to the cause thanks to the publicity the rebels had enjoyed since the Matthews articles. One of the youths confessed he had been tracking them for two months, and others came off as mere adventurers. The rebels were not yet at a point where they could be choosy with who they recruited, and Fidel welcomed them to the revolution with open arms. The most notable addition of these new recruits was Roberto Rodriguez, who will earn the nickname Vaquerito, or Little Cowboy, and will earn a place in the pantheon of Cuban revolutionary heroes. Che was assigned the duty of interrogating the newcomers, and provided each with a rudimentary political understanding and orientation. In his interrogation of the Gajero Julio Guerrero, Che learned that Julio had been neighbors with the traitor Eutimio Guerra and had been offered $300 and a pregnant cow in exchange for killing Fidel. $300 and a pregnant cow is a far cry from the $10,000 Eutimio had claimed to have been offered. 
Still, it would have seemed a very compelling offer for a poor peasant from the Sierra Maestra. Julio had declined the offer and been on the run ever since his home had been burned down by the Cuban military for suspected links to the rebels. For the few weeks immediately following Tabor's interview, things moved fairly slowly for the 26th of July movement in the Sierra Maestra. As noted, they welcomed a steady stream of new recruits, but mostly they waited for a new weapon shipment. After the failed palace assault by the Revolutionary Directorate that we discussed last episode, the 26th of July had taken control of one of their weapons cache and intended to put it to use in the jungle. The problem was that it was taking longer than expected, and the transporter of the weapons had missed that first rendezvous date. The precious cargo of weapons and ammunition finally arrived on May 19th, and Fidel sent 25 men to retrieve it. When they returned, Che wrote, For us it was the most marvelous spectacle in the world. The instruments of death were on exhibit before the covetous eyes of all the combatants. Fidel inspected and distributed the new guns to his soldiers. He assigned one of the three Madsen machine guns to the general staff and specifically placed Che in charge of it. In his published account, Reminiscence of the Cuban Revolutionary War, Che describes the moment with pride. I will always remember the moment I was given the machine gun, which was old and of poor quality, but to me it was an important acquisition. In this way I made my debut as a full-time combatant, for until then I had been a part-time combatant and my main responsibility had been as the troops doctor. I had entered a new stage. With the weapons in hand, it was time to end the period of inactivity. Fidel and his general staff debated the best course of action. Che pitched his plan to ambush some army troop trucks, but Fidel won the vote with his plan to attack the coastal army garrison at El Ubero. El Ubero would mark the furthest east the rebels had ever ventured, and its 60 soldiers would represent their largest target yet. If successful, Fidel's plan would be a huge show of strength and, more importantly, provide a large morale boost. Along with the Madsen machine gun, Che was assigned a new squad of four young men. Their main task was to carry and operate the machine gun under Che's order. All four would survive the war. Joel Iglesias would remain close to Che, rise to the rank of commander, and later become the leader of the rebel youth organization. Captain Floss would eventually gain the rank of lieutenant. The final two, the Baton brothers, grew disillusioned with the revolution after the war. They took up arms against the regime they helped bring to power, killed the revolutionary commander, and became outlaws. Their status as outlaws was short-lived, however, as they were captured and executed by the Castro regime. Being war heroes was not enough to earn them leniency. The rebels readied to mobilize toward El Ubero, but before setting out, Fidel chose to call the group together and give everyone a final opportunity to leave the rebel army. Che reported, in the end, a total of nine left, leaving the total number of men at 127. Almost all are now armed. One thing I know for certain is that if I were among that 127 about to attack an army garrison, I definitely would not want to be one of the unarmed. As rebels marched toward El Uvero, they received word from an El Uvero sawmill manager named Enrique Lopez that three military guards in civilian clothes had been sent to spy on his installation. Lopez had been a childhood friend of Fidel, and he, along with his bosses, the Baboon brothers, had secretly pledged their support to the 26th of July movement. They had helped transport weapons and bought food and supplies for the rebels under cover of purchases made for their own employees. Fidel ordered a contingent of men to capture the army spies, and they returned shortly with two of the three, with the third having departed prior to the contingent's arrival. 
The two confessed to being spies and begged for mercy. The next day, Fidel gave the order, and the rear guard executed them as the march to El Uvero resumed. The Battle of El Uvero began at daybreak on the morning of May 28th, and I will turn it over to Che to describe the battle. As soon as the firing order was given, with the shot from Fidel, the machine guns began to rattle. The garrison returned fire with a great deal of effectiveness, as I realized later. Almeida's people advanced in the open, impelled by his fearless example. I could see Camilo advancing with his cap adorned with the July 26th armband. I advanced along the left with two helpers carrying clips and baton with the short machine gun. The battle had gotten off to a rocky start thanks to the rebels arriving during the night and thinking they were closer with a better view of the garrison than reality would later reveal. No matter, the rebels fought with tenacity and they outnumbered the garrison. Che's advance was joined by other men as they reached open ground and began to crawl. Mario Leal was next to Che and was shot. Che administered mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, covered the head wound with a piece of paper, and left him in the care of Joel Iglesias. He returned to the Madison machine gun and renewed his firing at the garrison. Others were hit by return fire, including Manuel Acuna. Che and those on the ground readied for a frontal assault when the garrison surrendered. Che estimated that the battle lasted around 2 hours and 45 minutes. Fidel's gamble of attacking the garrison paid off as his men earned their first major victory, and the new recruits were given their first real action. The victory was not without cost as six men had lost their lives, including two that had been with them since the beginning, a Gajero guide named Alijo Mendoza and a member of the Grama expedition in Julito Diaz. Two men were in critical condition, and seven more were wounded. For the garrison, things were worse, as the rebels had killed 14, wounded 19, taken 14 prisoners with only six having escaped. Luckily, the battle had resulted in zero civilian deaths or injuries. Che transformed back from soldier to doctor in order to treat the wounded from both sides, a transformation that involved little more than washing his hands. He did all he could for the injured with the limited supplies plundered from the garrison. The rebels could only stay for so long as it was assumed that the six who had escaped would soon return with reinforcements. It was decided that the rebels would leave their two critically wounded members in the care of the largely inexperienced garrison doctor, in addition to releasing the 19 wounded enemy soldiers. The rebels then withdrew from El Uvero in trucks provided by the sawmill manager Lopez. Che had been the last to leave as he helped load the trucks with as many medical supplies as he could find. He waved goodbye to the two injured rebel soldiers, unsure whether or not they would be treated with dignity when the reinforcements arrived. In the end, the Cuban army cared for the men. While it was too late for one, who died en route to an army hospital, the other was the headshot Mario Leal, who Che had resuscitated during the firefight. Mario would recover from his wound and spend the remainder of the revolution in the Isle of Pines prison. The Battle of El Uvero had been an assault by men who had advanced bare-chested against an enemy protected by very poor defenses. Che admitted that this victory was our coming of age. From this battle on, our morale grew tremendously, our decisiveness and our hopes for triumph also grew. Perhaps even more important than the morale boost was the confidence it gave the rebels to attack other small, away from major area, enemy forces. It provided the blueprint for success against these barracks, and the battle plan would be improved upon as the months continued. The rebels drove for the remainder of the day. As night fell, they stopped to bury their six dead companions. 
After the burial, it was decided that the army would again split between the healthy and injured. It was assumed that the Cuban army would soon be on their trail, and it was imperative that the guerrillas disperse back into the jungle before that happened. The smaller group of injured troops could more easily hide in the region, and Enrique Lopez would be able to provide Che with guides, transportation, hiding places, and a regular supply of medicine to treat the injured men. The next month was a slow one for Che and the recovering troops. When Lopez did not arrive with a promised truck for their transport, Che's contingent had no choice except to conceal some of their weapons and set out on foot. For the entire month of June, Che moved them from farm to farm while they scavenged for food, made a tactical alliance with the local overseer, put on a show of controlling the region, received new volunteers, but mostly just moved from place to place in an attempt to remain undetected. The seven-month anniversary of the grandma's landing came and went on July 2nd, with little incident beyond Che suffering a bout of asthma the day prior. In July, the marching continued as the soldiers looked healthier, and it was nearing time to rejoin Fidel. Lopez had decided it was time to formally join the armed struggle against Batista and leave behind his position as sawmill manager for the duration of the war. Che welcomed Lopez into the group and started back westward toward Palma Mocha. The march west was largely uneventful. There was a mass desertion plot uncovered that Che was able to quash when he confronted the leaders of the plot. The low light of the trip was when two, unknown at the time, fugitive outlaws joined the group only to desert with their weapons shortly after. It was later suspected that they had joined only to gain intel on which plantations might be vacant thanks to their owners joining the rebels with the intention of carrying out simple robberies after they had abandoned the movement. An interesting story from the march resulted from Che exchanging his role of medical doctor for that of troop dentist for the day. Rebels had no anesthesia or proper tools, so instead of numbing the pain, Che just yanked at the tooth until it came out and if the owner of said tooth cried too much, he would curse at them. This extraction method was successful for Israel Pardo, but Joel Iglesias was not as lucky. There was nothing Che could do to remove the rotten molar, and Joel had to suffer throughout the remainder of the war with not only a rotten tooth, but a tooth that was broken into several pieces. Based on the description, this sounded far worse than the ice skate scene in Castaway. Che and Fidel's reunion occurred on July 17th as Che's group rejoined the camp. In his absence, the rebel army had grown to 200 men and had been able to resist an army incursion led by Captain Angel Sanchez Mascara. The resistance had led to Fidel proclaiming the Sierra Maestra area west of Mount Turquino as liberated territory. The success had left the men confident and, even with the increased numbers, the men appeared well-disciplined. Less exciting for Che, but great news for the revolution, was news that five days prior to his return, Fidel had agreed to, signed, and started to distribute the Manifesto of the Sierra Maestra, which was a pact signed between Fidel, Raul Chivas, and Felipe Pazos. The pact was a proclamation of unity of the disparate anti-Batista groups. Raul Chivas was the younger brother of the deceased founder of the Orthodox Party, Eduardo Chivas, who previously appeared in episodes 1.10, 1.11, and 1.12. Rul Chivas and Pazos were respected members of the Orthodox Party and part of what Che called the bourgeois political opposition. The pact was accompanied with a text that called for Batista's immediate resignation, rejected the military junta, and proposed for a member of the civic service to take charge of the transition in order to call and oversee a legal election. 
Che distrusted and despised middle-of-the-road politicians like Chivas and Pazos, but Fidel saw the advantage of this short-term tactical alliance as it allowed him to claim the moral high ground while securing broader support from Cuba's moderates. On a brighter note for Che, he received a promotion on the day of his return. Che was given the rank of captain and was put in charge of a column with a mission to hunt down Captain Angel Sanchez Mosquera in Palma Mocha. As head of a column, Che assumed command of 75 rebels, including the men he had led since El Uvera, along with the platoons of Ramiro Valdez, Ciro Rodondo, and Lalo Sardinas. Lalo was appointed as Che's deputy, and Che chose to institute a hierarchy between those who had been in battle and those who had not. Those who had fought the enemy were known as the combatiente, while those who had not were assigned the grunt work and given the title of descamisados. Los descamisados translates approximately as the shirtless ones. It was a reference to the working class supporters of former Argentine president Juan Perón. Perón served as president of Argentina from 1946 to 1955. Juan Perón had declared in a speech in 1945 as Secretary of Labor that we've passed social reforms to make the Argentine people proud to live where they live once again. The declaration and speech inspired an ovation by his supporters, but provoked a reaction from the conservative opposition that resulted in him resigning his post and then being jailed. His soon-to-be wife, Eva Perón, helped organize a demonstration by labor and women's groups that demanded his release. The day of the demonstration was reportedly a very hot one, which resulted in many of the men removing their shirts during the demonstration, thus becoming shirtless. From then on, Perón's followers were known as the shirtless ones. However, this could be folk etymology, and the term might have just started as an insult by the elites of Argentine society against the working poor who made it the majority of Perón's political base. For Jay, this was a powerful term as it represented the working class poor taking steps to better their own world, and it was this message he wanted instilled into the novice troops of his column. That, and you also notice how Che described the rebels who attacked El Ubero Garrison as bare-chested. Shirtless was powerful imagery for Che. Che spent the next three days preparing ambushes around Maestra, a hill that rose between the Palmamoca and La Plata rivers. He ordered scouts to search the nearby area for soldiers and readied his largely inexperienced troops for action. However, it seemed there were minimal government soldiers in this region of the Sierra Maestra. Remaining close to Fidel's camp had allowed Che to flex his leadership muscles with the knowledge that the remainder of the rebels were not far off in case he needed reinforcements. Che's actual authority was still very much inferior to Fidel's at this proximity. On the morning of July 22nd, as Che's column laid in wait for their hoped-for ambush, one of his soldiers accidentally fired his gun. The poor rebel was hauled not before his direct commander, but all the way up to Fidel for his discipline. Fidel was in a foul and unforgiving mood on that day, and he ordered the man executed for his mistake. Che, along with his deputy Lalo and Crescencio Perez, interceded on behalf of the rebel to reduce the sentence. Luckily, cooler heads prevailed, and Fidel agreed to reduce the sentence. I cannot find an explanation for Fidel's hardened mood on that day, considering no penalty had been discussed when a soldier had nearly shot Che when he was doing the rounds months earlier. It is possible that it was the news from Santiago of a failed rally that resulted in the death of Jasu Paz, the brother of Frank Paz, and a prominent member of the 26th of July movement in Santiago. It was believed by supporters and family members that Jasu had been captured alive and then executed with a shot to the head. 
It was sad news for the movement to receive, and it was said to have affected Frank Paz greatly. As a show of sympathy, Fidel had arranged to send Frank a letter of condolence signed by all of the rebel commanders in the Sierra Maestra. When the letter was passed to Che, Fidel stopped him before his pen had the chance to touch paper. Fidel told Che to include the title of Commandante when he signed. In that informal way, Che had received his second promotion in a week. For the remainder of the war, Che proudly held the rank of Commandante as commander of what would come to be known as Column Number 4. Despite being the second column, Fidel chose to call it Number 4 in order to confuse Batista's army about the rebels' true troop strength. In many ways, this new rank would remain as part of Che's persona for the rest of his days and be attached to his legacy. Partially thanks to the Commandante hat that Che continued to wear long after the war and made eternal by Alberto Corda's famous photo, Guerrillero Heroico, or Heroic Guerrilla Fighter, which according to the Victoria and Albert Museum is the most reproduced photo in the history of photography. For the remainder of Che's life, he used the title of Commandante Che Guevara with everyone save his closest friends and family. The promotion was made official with the gift of a wristwatch from Manzanillo and a small star insignia provided by Celia Sanchez. The rank of Commandante was especially significant to Che as it was the highest rank in the rebel army and to that date had only been possessed by Fidel. It was a testament to Che's commitment, Fidel's high esteem, and Che's importance to the movement that saw the rank handed out to an Argentine doctor before any other Cuban. The new rank provided great power, and with great power comes great responsibility. The commander's new command was to take his column into the mountains and hunt down Captain Sanchez Mascara. Unfortunately, shortly after the two columns had separated, Che learned that the captain had left the mountains. The change in command and circumstance brought with it new rules for Che's column. During the recovery from El Uvero and the march back to Fidel, Che had been fairly lax on desertions and had even provided multiple opportunities to leave the army during the march. With the rebels taking the offensive, Che no longer had the luxury to allow men to come and go as they pleased. After a string of desertions, Che sent a small group of fighters to track one of the deserters with a simple order, to kill him if they found him. From there, it was known amongst the column that joining the army had been an actual commitment. When a member of the column later claimed he had killed the deserter, Che used the man's death as an example to the rest of the men. Before he walked the troops by the dead man, he explained why desertion was punishable by death and why anyone who betrayed the revolution would be condemned. An overseer ally of Che's named David Gomez then sent intelligence that Batista's army's next move would be to attempt to infiltrate the rebel army with spies and assassins. It was reasoned that while it had been difficult to fight against a guerrilla army, it would in contrast be relatively easy to just send a man in to kill Fidel, which likely would result in the collapse of the 26th of July movement. As a result, Che was even more wary of newcomers and his entrance interrogation grew more intensive. With Captain Sanchez Mascara no longer within their grasp, Che proposed a plan to attack the army garrison of Buicito. Buicito was approximately a day's march from their current location and on the other side of Mount Turquino from Fidel's column. The attack would have the double effect of providing his novices with their first taste of combat while distracting attention away from Fidel's column. The attack on the garrison occurred on the night of July 31st. It did not go according to plan and it very nearly ended in disaster for the commanding officer. Some of the units did not arrive on time, whether due to nerves that kept him from waiting any longer or fear that any further delay would result in a lost opportunity 
Che decided to start the attack on his own, without waiting for the late units. He picked up his Thompson submachine gun and walked right up to the garrison's barracks. He aimed the gun at the sentry and shouted, HALT! The sentry ignored the order and moved to the side. Che tracked the movement with the gun and pulled the trigger. Nothing happened as the submachine gun jammed. Another rebel who had followed Che to the barracks aimed his rifle at the sentry and tried to open fire. Once again, nothing happened as the rifle also refused to fire. The sentry was likely dumbfounded for a second while he registered the back-to-back near-death experiences. In that moment, Che turned tail and ran with a speed he reportedly never matched again. He ducked around the corner and landed in the cross street as the sentry returned fire from a gun that did not jam. Che was incapacitated for the remainder of the fight as he tried to repair his Thompson, which is commonly known as the Tommy gun. Sentry's gunfire had invited retaliation from the rebels, and shortly after the fight began, Ramiro and his men had broken in from the rear and forced the garrison to surrender. Rebels had injured six from the garrison, two fatally, while the rebels had suffered only one casualty. The column looted the garrison and then set fire to the buildings. The column loaded up trucks before taking two prisoners. The garrison sergeant in charge and a chivato named Oran. The others were released as the rebels made their escape. The men drank cold beer and headed toward the village of Las Minas. The villagers cheered the Guerreros with shouts of Viva, which translates as live, or perhaps more accurately in the context, long live the rebels. Chase Column stopped here to bury their dead man in the local cemetery. Che knew that he would be unable to protect the village from reprisal if word got out of the warm reception the rebels had received. He also knew they did not have the capacity to keep their two prisoners for long. He devised a plan that called for an ally to loudly ask the rebels to release the prisoners as a show of goodwill. Che answered back that the rebels had only taken prisoners to stop the army from attacking the village. The ally insisted, and Che acquiesced, saying that he could not go against the will of the inhabitants. The prisoners were released, and a short time later the column had also departed with the hope that the street theater had been enough to convince the garrison sergeant to leave these people in peace. The attack on Buisito had been abysmal for Che the fighter, yet had been a great success for Che the commanding officer. The attack furnished his column with limited new gear, a victory he could call his own, and a taste of battle for the now formerly shirtless ones. Che was satisfied with his first command, and ready to continue wreaking havoc on Batista's army. Thank you for taking the time to listen to today's episode. Next time we will follow Che's column into further battles. Until next time, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app so that you do not miss it. The show is hosted and available on Acast or any other podcast app such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podcast Republic, Podcast Attic, iHeartRadio, and many others. Until next time, cheers.